0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here in Montreal uh, with Jeremy Howard, and uh, I am speaking with Jeremy as part of a special series of shows we're doing about uh, reflection of the machine learning and deep learning world uh, for 2018, and some thoughts
1: on predictions for 2019. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Sam. Nice to be here. I'm worried I'm not nearly cool enough to be able to tell you much about trends and whatnot, but I'll do what I can. (laughs) I am sure we're gonna have a wonderful
0: conversation. So this is the first of these that I'm doing, uh, and I expect that the format will shift a little bit as, I do them, but maybe we can kind of start by just getting your off the top of the head kind of reflections on 2018 before we focus on some of the things in particular around deep learning research that uh, you found most
1: interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I guess it's easiest for me to talk about the year in terms of the stuff that I care about, which is um, uh, increasing accessibility of deep learning for normal people to solve normal problems. Um, so one of the, I guess our main work towards that this year has been trying to um, make it faster and easier and less expensive to train neural nets um, across more different areas. So there's uh, there's a lot of people who have been doing work in that area as well, which I could touch on. So one is uh, that when you look at the Stanford competition called Dawnbench, it kind of kicked off increased interest in an area which had been really underappreciated before, which is can you train accurate large models quickly and cheaply? So there was Mm -hmm. a competition to measure those two things. And so um, uh, before the competition, it took a few days generally to train ImageNet to a reasonable accuracy, um, uh, particularly if you were using kind of commodity hardware like stuff you would rent from AWS, right? Um, and uh, by the end of it, um, uh, we had gotten to first place on the leaderboard with uh, uh, 18 minutes, $40 using nothing but Amazon AWS. And and then there's been other related work from other researchers who have got it down, not on AWS commodity equipment, but on more specialized equipment down to seven minutes. and so the kind of stuff that's allowed that to happen has been things like um, fantastic work from uh, Leslie Smith on um, achieving super convergence, so using much higher learning rates, um, particularly approach to learning rate scheduling called one cycle scheduling, which we use as the default all the time now and um, makes life much faster and easier. Um,
0: I remember uh, in the course and I believe our last conversation uh,
1: talking about cyclical learning rates is one cycle. Yeah, this is the next next stage. So last year, I guess, Leslie did the CLR paper, cyclical learning rates. Um, One cycle uh, is just what it sounds like, which is uh, uh, to spend about half of your epochs gradually increasing the learning rate and about half gradually decreasing it. Um, But there's a few. Really important insights you have to combine with that. Uh, one in Leslie's paper is that as you increase the learning rate, you should decrease momentum. Mm. So you have these two things happening at the same time. So if you use the fast AI library, that'll happen for you automatically. Mm-hmm. And so it means that as you get to those really high learning rates, um, the, because the momentum's a lot lower, you're much less likely to kind of accelerate further than the, <laughs> the model can handle. hmm Something not quite related to leslie 's work, but um, stuff from frank hutter 's lab uh, around um, uh, being able to handle weight decay properly when you 're using um, dynamic learning rates so momentum and atom um, so their techniques called atom W turns mm-hmm. out to be super important uh, as well for this um, was Atom W this year? Um, I can't quite remember if it's in the last 12 months or not. It, yeah. Maybe it was slightly more. I don't okay. know. But the kind of the combination, I guess, of all these things has been very much this year. So mm-hmm. and we combine those two together along with um, progressive resizing. So basically, um, I don't know if we were the f- first to do it. There was a lot of people that kind of did it all about the same time. But basically this idea of like, why don't you do most of your training on small images? Um, and then gradually resize because modern convolutional neural nets are all, um, don't care what size Mm -hmm. your input is. And so. And what's the advantage of doing that? Well, it's just super fast, you know. So, uh, well, two things, it's super fast. You do most of your training at 64 by 64. So you're decreasing your compute by more than 10 X. But then the nice thing is you can do the last one or two epochs at a larger size than most people. So most people do 224 by 224 the whole time. Mm So we'll go through to 288 or even bigger. So the intuition there being that you can teach the network
0: the basic things that it wants to learn about edges and and, uh, textures and What does the cat look like?
1: And what a cat looks like at 64 by 64 is basically the same as 288 by 288. Mm -hmm. So the last couple of epochs, it's really just learning a few little tweaks around like, okay, this breed of cat has a you know, this colored nose and this breed of cat has this slightly longer hair or whatever. Uh So it can do most of its learning. Um, And actually that's been a real focus for us throughout the year is like um, uh, this kind of, and same with Leslie Smith, uh, doing a lot more stuff dynamically, changing things during training. So for example, something we're going to release next week is doing the same thing for GANs. So we've now got GANs training quickly and easily and reliably for the first time and the trick again was basically to pre-train the critic and pre-train the generator using kind of simpler fast approaches and on smaller images and then at the very end you kind of ganify it. Okay. Um, So you know that's kind of been a common theme I think and so so a lot of that ties in then to kind of transfer learning because all these things of like gradually increasing the image size is kind of just a a type of transfer learning. It's kind of transfer learning you're doing within the training. Within training, a training. yeah. Uh, so for our GANs, you know, we kind of do a similar thing of this kind of transfer learning as part of the process of training again. Hmm. Um, and so in general, transfer learning lets you generalize better, lets you train faster, generally lets you use less data. Um, so we had a particular focus, um, as you know, on, on NLP for that. And so we um, show it with NLP, you can use like 100 times less data and still get state-of-the-art results for mm-hmm. sentiment classification. And uh, so it's all about transfer learning. And then um, Alec Radford at OpenAI, you know, built on top of that, replacing our LSTM with a transformer. And then Google um, built on top of that, um, um, making some tweaks, but mainly just doing it for longer with more data and Mm -hmm. you know we're now at a point where we know um, I guess we know kind of every time people try and do transfer learning anywhere (laughs) you know it tends to either let you get way better results on small data sets than people thought were possible or if you'd use big data sets like Google did with BERT Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of smashed the state of the art of what people thought was possible Mm -hmm. so still really underappreciated area frankly Uh, still most people don't know how to do it had like an
0: interesting conversation uh, here at NeurIPS. Someone approached me and was—we were just kind of exchanging thoughts on what was interesting at the conference. And mm-hmm. they said they didn't see a lot of transfer learning. No. Like, did that go away? And I haven't seen any. Yeah, I, I both haven't seen it, but it's also—it's kind of uh, you know being baked into a lot of things. It's kind inherent and, and. But also
1: like NeurIPS is very. Tainted by its history and culture, so the papers here like, very tend to overrepresent uh, either things which are very mathematically intensive, or also things that follow certain trends. So mm-hmm. at NeurIPS, every second paper is either adversarial blah or reinforcement learning blah. You know, uh-huh. so like, um, yeah, it's not necessarily a conference you expect to see the most <laughs> practically impactful right. stuff, unless some of the workshops are a little bit different. Um, But I think that's been another feature of 2018 is like people are putting adversarial into everything and putting RL into everything and not generally for good reasons, especially adversarial. There's this huge Mm -hmm. literature now around avoiding adversarial attacks. And I've yet to find anybody who's, and I've asked many researchers in the field, you know, directly, can you show me a actual practical example of where you would need to use this thing, you know, whatever they built. And no one's managed to yet. What about on the generative
0: side? Are you as bearish on the generative on the GANs?
1: So yeah, so I spent <laughs> two weeks figuring out how to train GANs properly, and finally we now have something in Fast AI where you can train them in an hour on a single GPU reliably. And I'm very proud that we got to that point and we have this really flexible API that allows researchers to plug in things in ways they couldn't before, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I was also researching how to avoid GANs and I've figured out for generative stuff <laughs> how to actually get GAN level performance without using GANs, mm. so I'm I'm not sure. Is this stuff that you've written about or uh, published it, somewhere? It's, it's coming up, so okay. uh, we're um, particularly <laughs> doing some work um, in uh, microscopy mm-hmm. uh, in collaboration with the Salk Institute at the moment. Okay. Um, through analytic or uh, through fast.ai? No, no, I haven't had anything to do with analytic for years. Oh, okay. Um, this is through uh, uh, through a few things, but it's particularly through a new um, medical and life sciences research lab that I've just um, uh, helped start and I'm now the chair of uh, called WAMRI, the flow okay. uh, AI and medical research institute, and it's at, um, it's at USF, uh, University of San Francisco. Um, and we basically invite medical researchers and life science folks to partner with us you know and we'll help with the deep learning stuff and they'll help with the domain specific stuff yeah so through that collaboration you know we, one of the things we've been working on is helping Salk Institute to get better results from their microscopy um, because you know they're world leaders in this area and it turns mm-hmm. out that if you you um, can get really high resolution microscopy, then you can literally learn. They have been like publishing papers showing breakthrough understanding of like how proteins fold and how mm-hmm. that actually, you know, how that actually impacts cells and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. So initially, we were kind of looking at GANs and getting pretty good results, and particularly one of our um, previous students, uh, Jason Antich, has created this awesome thing called Deoldify. Which takes uh, old black and white, um, low-resolution photos and turns Mm -hmm. them into beautiful color pictures, Mm -hmm. and so he's been helping us with some of this work of like getting GANs to work reliably because he's he does better practical work with GANs than anybody else I've seen. And how would GANs play into this Salk Institute use case? Well, it's you know you've you've got these microscopy results you want to. You want to get the the highest resolution output you can from whatever input comes out of your microscope. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's actually been some uh, very high-impact work in microscopy recently um, on using SuperRes for that purpose. Mm -hmm. But it turns out, um, not surprisingly, that that research was not at all using kind of modern deep learning methods. And so... um, it's, it's clear we can do a lot better. Okay. Um, but then, you know, as I say, then it turns out we've, I've kind of realized that there are certain loss functions we can use which avoid the need for GANs entirely. So I'm now wondering if I wasted all that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm very interested in generative models, you know, and to see, like, to see the uh, stuff that's happening in the world of life sciences, mm-hmm. you know, through better using the whatever signal they can get from their from their microscopes it's it's really exciting you know yeah um and it's you really need domain specialists and deep learning specialists working very closely together because like there's all these cool things that that they can do that i wouldn't have otherwise known about and vice versa so for example they can like while they're kind of taking the picture they can like Change the wavelength of light they're using. They can change the focal length they're using. They can change the angle that they're using. Kind of, and they can kind of end up with this like long exposure, almost like a video. Hmm. And so we can then get this whole extra dimension, and there's this kind of sub-pixel resolution embedded in that. Um, so hmm. it's, um, I mean, this is what this is exactly what we hoped for, honestly, when we started Fast.ai, AI, is that kind of domain experts would be able to use deep learning to do a better job of whatever it is they're Mm -hmm. doing. So it's nice Mm -hmm. to see that
0: really happening. Have you seen any applications of GANs uh, outside of the image domain? I kind of wonder conceptually, you should be able to apply this to text and maybe do some of the things that people are using RNNs and LSTMs to do.
1: Yeah, well, like I say, I feel like people are putting adversarial in everything and I'm not convinced it's helpful. I, I think often it's a bit of a lazy shortcut you know, to like actually thinking about what your loss function should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned text. Um, it, it's a good question. There's, there's. I think the more general question in text is what, what kind of like augmentation and stuff can we do in text to um, be able to use less data and get better results. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've kind of seen some sign of trying to use adversarial approaches there, which I I don't think is necessary. Um, like, there was a recent paper in the last few weeks, which was basically, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the cutout paper. Yeah. So, no. Okay, so you've got dropout, which I think everybody knows, which is like removing activations at random. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the cutout paper in vision um, specifically re- uh, removed a whole contiguous sections of an image, so kind of cut squares out of it and use that, there's regularization. Mm-hmm. And then there's been a more recent paper in the last couple of weeks, which has kind of basically done cut out at every layer of a neural net. So it's basically dropout, but instead of removing activations at random, you remove activations that are next to each other. Um, stuff like that okay. almost certainly will work equally well in text mm-hmm. um, and um, don't require any of this kind of adversarial stuff. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so I think my view is probably GANs are a little overhyped and adversarial attacks are a little overhyped. But mm-hmm. It's certainly a great way to get published at Europe's. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you feel the same way about RL. Have you also experimented with RL?
1: Well, kind of. I spent 10 years kind of studying optimization more generally, mm-hmm. and um, um, I never felt like these standard dif- differentiation-based approaches when you've got this kind of long-term credit assignment issue Mm -hmm. necessarily make a lot of sense. And um, I still feel like there's a lot of the optimization literature that's being ignored by the RL community. Um, You've seen a little bit of like evolutionary algorithms get touched on here and there. Like I think Uber did some work there. Um, But when I think back to like all the stuff that was going on in the early nineties, uh, People are just starting to rediscover some of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, in the early 90s, combining evolutionary algorithms together with um, uh, kind of gradient-based methods was really common. Mm -hmm. And I just saw a paper literally reinventing it like two weeks ago. The problem RL is trying to solve is great, which is like, hey, let's not just try to predict things, but let's actually try to figure out what action to take. Right. Um, But I feel like currently the RL community is... um, is not quite treating it as enough as as differently enough as it mm-hmm. should be. It's you know when I spent a long time on optimization, it became clear over time that it it's it's a good idea to kind of recognize the differences between prediction tasks and more general optimization tasks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. This is interesting because I had a chance to chat with, uh, Sergey Levine last night and we were talking about just generally, uh, what he's found interesting, um, over the past year in, in RL in particular, this was informal. Uh, uh, but one of the things that he mentioned was a paper, uh, TD three paper twin delay deterministic policy gradient, um, which, Uh, Sounded like just the kind of hack that you would love. Like it's a a tweak to the way they do the policy that like he didn't even go into the details because it was such a a nit, but it gave him, you know, two X better training times. Uh, So if, you know, fast AI was doing RL, it would be just the kind of thing that you'd bake into the library. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, we, you know, we only work on stuff which clearly works in practice for the kinds of problems that most people have. Um, And, and, you know, Levine's one of the very few people who's using RL in very appropriate and useful ways at the moment. So Mm -hmm. for stuff involving robotics, there's a lot more you can do with RL because anytime you've got some like physical system that you can actually model with physics pretty accurately, you can kind of pull it apart and add appropriate constraints and Mm -hmm. add appropriate kind of auxiliary losses. And there's a lot more that you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think yeah, the stuff he's doing is interesting and useful. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are using RL for stuff. I don't know. I just went to the start of the um, health workshop here at NeurIPS and mm-hmm. there's all these people tackling kind of various medical problems using RL, which just seemed like, I don't know, slightly ridiculous in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Interesting,
0: interesting. Um, so there's been... Uh, we were chatting before we got started and you mentioned some of the work that's been happening to try to better understand the way some of our some of the you know tweaks we've been doing like Batch Norm and other things are are working. Can you elaborate on, oh, yeah. on some of that? I would work?
1: love to. I mean, I feel like yeah. that's something where there's been some great progress this year and particularly in the last couple of months. Um, there's a um, fantastic uh, poster here at NeurIPS um, that's been in an archive for a while called uh, Visualizing the Lost Landscape mm-hmm. of Neural Nets. And um, what they basically showed is uh, it's something I've been talking about for, for ages, but never actually did anything about it, which is this idea that you can have uh, kind of this idea of, of of sharp kind of parts of the loss surface where... If you're in a sharp part of the loss surface, then the idea is it probably won't generalize very well, because if you change anything a little bit, now you're not in that kind of nice low area anymore. And uh, it's kind of an overreaction to what I thought was a kind of a obvious and kind of mathematical issue, which is how you can like reparameterize the weights to make anything arbitrarily sharp, which to me, like, if any time you can reparameterize something, why don't you just normalize out that reparameterization? Mm-hmm. So this Visualizing the Lost Landscape actually did that. So they actually did the normalization, and then they did this, you know, they built some beautiful software and some beautiful visualizations to show what happens. And uh, they, they found some really interesting things. Um, um, one of the most interesting was they found that when you look at the actual trajectory as you train neural net, for example, um, uh, if you take the PCA space of the weights, there's basically uh, only two dimensions. You can basically that plot the entire or well, they said 40 to 90 percent of the variation in the direction of the gradient updates hmm. it lies in just two PCA directions. Independent so that, of the dimensionality of your Well, this was on ImageNet. Oh, okay. So I mean, this is obviously <laughs> super high dimensional. So yeah. you know, over a hundred million weights. Um, um, and so you know that, and you know, one of the nice things that means is you can kind of plot exactly what pretty close to exactly what's going on, which they did. And uh, you can also plot the lands- lost landscape that's being navigated. And so one thing they they found was if you, as soon as you add skip connections, so ResNets mm-hmm. versus the exact same net without the identity shortcuts. Um, Resnets basically make the whole surface incredibly smooth. And dense nets make it even smoother, by the way. Hmm. Um, So when you see their pictures, it just immediately makes you realize like, okay, you know, this is why (laughs) we've all been loving resnets so much. Hmm. Um, And so you can kind of see similar stuff with normalization so one of the really interesting papers to come out in the last couple of months so there's been two papers coming out very similar times which both 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 basically said um, hey you know how batch norm was meant to help with covariate shift well it turns out it doesn't help with covariate shift and it's got nothing to do with covariate shift Um, and actually what it does is it makes the loss surface smoother
0: Hmm.
1: um, which Actually, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You know, if, if your current activations are scaled really poorly, um, then if you don't have batch norm, the only way to fix that is to modify all of your weights on that layer, where else if you do have batch norm, you only have to modify the batch norm weights to fix the scaling. So it just makes the loss surface a lot smoother. So then there's been other very nice kind of follow-ups to that, well not exactly follow-ups, coming out at similar times to that saying, um, hey, here are some different ways of doing normalization, which don't focus on the covariate shift, but focus on the scaling. So spectral norm and weight norm in particular, mm-hmm. which are now both built into PyTorch. And when you create a conv layer in fast AI, you can literally pick from an enum of what norm type you want. Mm. And um, uh, yeah, they, they, they help a lot actually with again, stabilizing training, um, so yeah, all these all these kind of insights into what's going on inside the neural network is helping lead to better ways to train the neural networks, which means less hyperparameters, less um, you know more resilient, mm-hmm. higher learning rates. Um, it's all making life. Uh, easier in practice Mm -hmm. which is great.
0: So last year the big controversy, uh, at least one of them was Ali Rahimi's uh, kind of call for greater rigor do you feel like a lot of this work is a response to that
1: or um, No, I never quite figured out what Ali meant and even though I had quite a few private chats with him, I never quite figured uh out what he meant Um, I uh, tried to dig into it Um, I think, yeah so so I, 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 you know since I don't quite know what he was saying and haven't figured it out, I uh, I can't quite... I mean, he's a great speaker, and so a lot of people Mm -hmm. were like, I really liked that talk, but when I asked them, like, what exactly (laughs) did he mean by rigor and exactly what are you going to do about it? No Mm -hmm. one had a good answer to that question. Mm. So for me, uh, you know, as a kind of an experimentalist, I I think rigor is about ablation studies, you know? So Mm -hmm. if you look at the ULM fit paper that Sebastian and I did, we spend a lot of time doing ablation studies. So we said, like, what if you did this with more data versus less data? What if you removed this training thing from this training thing from this training thing? What if you tried this data set versus that data set? And so we just had lots of tables and pictures saying, here's you know here's the things showing you which bits help and how much they help and what they help with. So to me, that's um, you know when when people don't have that. Mm-hmm. I don't find their papers terribly useful because I don't know what's what's actually helping and often the things right. they thought were helping weren't helping even worse for me is when people don't use a strong baseline so they'll have some really crappy model and they'll say like oh look our technique X improves that crappy model mm-hmm. but when you look at it it's you know their technique X is just a crappy way of doing what the normal baselines would have done mm-hmm. anyway so I think like to me, in terms of ex- experimental work, strong baselines and good ablation studies is is what it's about. But, you know, for the Neurops crowd, rigor often means Greek letters. You know, yeah. they want to see like, you know, convexity proofs and error bound proofs and all this stuff, which I've just never seen useful. Like the only thing I've seen those kind of proofs do is to totally mislead people. So like <laughs> we had what I call the SVM. That's pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, we had, well, it's true. We had what I call the SVM winter for like what, 15, 20 years, which uh-huh. is basically, you know, that Nick did this really um, to some people compelling papers. It's just kind of like, hey, all you need is SVMs. Here's the mathematical proof, mm-hmm. and. It, it, you know, when you actually look at it, it's 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 it's, it's the, the the things that people took out of that are, are, are rubbish. Like it's it's the difference between like in theory, here's what ought to work, versus in practice, here's what actually works. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's nice this year. Um, Leon Bateau's, uh, I can't remember the co-author, but uh, Leon Bateau's work uh, won a Test of Time Award. His twenty two two thousand and seven paper, yeah. which basically. Mm. I mean, it's, 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 it's ridiculous that it was necessary for this paper to even happen. But he basically said, look, um, all you people who are spending all this time on like fancy optimizers for SVMs, actually SGD works better. And, <laughs> and, and, like, and then here's all the Greek symbols you need. You know, like here's all the proof and math and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So like there was already plenty of experimental evidence to say like it works better, which most of the community ignored. And so it really took somebody to come along and, like, say it in their own words and to, like, Mm -hmm. prove it. So to me, I'm kind of like, I don't know, like, similar thing with, like, going back further, Minsky, right? Minsky, like, proving that neural nets are a waste of time because they can't, like, solve the XOR problem. And so the thing is, all these mathematical proofs, they're always of oversimplified versions of the problems we're actually trying to solve because the problems we're actually trying to solve are not amenable to that kind of analytic Mm -hmm. approach. So, you know, took... 20 years, really, for somebody to come along and say, well, we're not just using one, one layer, you know, we right. can actually have a hidden layer. And if you have a hidden layer, then we can solve any arbitrary problem to arbitrarily close, given enough um, parameters. Uh, so again, like these kind of AI winters we had were really kicked off by people taking theoretical results far further than they should ever have been taken hmm. and ignoring all of the empirical evidence of, like, uh, I don't know, like guys like Jan LeCun who's, like, saying, like, hey, I've actually written this thing, Lynette 5, that actually reads numbers, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It works. It uses this thing called a convolutional neural network. And, you know, people like that just weren't getting published Mm -hmm. because, you know, because the theory had already proven that Hmm. we should be using these other approaches. So, yeah, I think that's... um, that's a concern I have about our field in general. It also is a real problem for diversity and inclusion because there's lots more people in the world who know how to code or, you know, know how to do some engineering, but won't know how to prove error bounds on something or whatever. Mm -hmm. And also like we'll be much more focused on like, Hey, I want to actually solve this problem in, in medicine or in, you know, um, disaster resilience or whatever. And so they'll want to be a publishing paper saying, here's mm-hmm. thing A that works for thing B. Mm-hmm. And the current focus in our field is yeah, very um, unfriendly yeah. <laughs> to that kind of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious,
0: having launched the new uh, fast.ai course this year, the deep learning course, any um, you know, specific 2018 learnings about uh, deep learning education, or what's required? You know what's uh, you know what's needed to kind of broaden the fold of, of folks that can do deep learning.
1: I think I've been surprised by how far people have gone on the back of the Fast AI course. Uh, like a lot of presenters at Europe's have come up to me and said they got into deep learning through Fast AI. And if you had asked ask me three years ago if our students are going to go on to be researchers presenting at Europe's, I would have been like, that sounds unlikely. I yeah. feel like we're just trying to get people to be reasonable practitioners. So I think, I think that's been a pleasant surprise. Um, it's also been, I've also been a bit surprised at how quickly the software has taken off. Um, like for me, that's kind of my focus now is like I would love the software to be as as standalone as possible and not really require people to do the course because there's a lot of investment in time to do the course. And yeah, I'm increasingly running into particularly researchers now who have come from backgrounds in TensorFlow or pure PyTorch or Chainer or whatever and are kind of saying like, oh, I started using the software and my research is going faster than it was before. Mm-hmm. So that's been nice. Um, but I think overall, you know, it's it, we, we've kept on finding the same things we've found in previous years. It's just accelerating. Like uh, I went to the Black and AI dinner last night in the Black and I workshop, which I saw you there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was just so great how many um, people came up to me and said like, uh, you know, hey, I'm from the Ivory Coast or I'm from Tanzania or whatever. And I had no way to learn deep learning until your course came along and now I've done it, and now I'm here at Europe's presenting at this workshop, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and they're always like kind of inspiring stories because often like you know they were telling me last night about the steps they had to go through to get a visa, often having to go to other countries and contacting yeah. the consul general, to you know like because they're they're forging paths no one's ever forged before, right. and now they're finding communities. So like um, it's so cool the way like. Three years ago when we did our first course, we had one student from Lagos mm-hmm. and he was like asking on the forum, like, Hey, anybody else from Lagos here, anybody else from Africa here? <laughs> you know, can I, like, can we have a community? No, nothing, you know? And mm-hmm. and now uh, Lagos is our second biggest fast AI community wow. uh, outside of the US. So Bangalore is still the biggest. But okay. but Lagos is huge, so like it's been really cool to see how just a little bit of um, and I know it's certainly not all thanks to Fast AI. There's lots of people doing great work here, but I know mm-hmm. like plenty of the people involved have got there thanks to Fast AI. So for example, one of the um, people presenting at the Black and AI dinner last night, uh, Judy DeToya, she's a um, uh, a radiologist who mm-hmm. got into deep learning through fast AI and now she's awesome. like an incredibly um, kick-ass leader both in the radiology world and in the deep learning world in the black and AI world so mm-hmm. um, yeah it, I feel like there's now enough momentum going on that these uh, underrepresented groups are not going to be underrepresented for too much longer. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah I thought the I forget his full name, but one of the presentations was Kareem Karim. There was an interesting uh, slide where one of the speakers uh, from Tunisia kind of asserted that AI is both this incredible, op- both a, uh existential threat for Africa in some ways and, and an awesome opportunity and kind of, uh, you know, for, for him it was a rallying cry to you know, get more people engaged in the process. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why Rachel and I started this. It's exactly why Rachel and I started this, is we both thought, like, this has the potential to massively increase inequality. And mm-hmm. That is that is exactly what will happen if there's just a the status quo. Right. Because all the people, you know, before we started Fast AI, all the people pretty much studying and working in deep learning were you know, Western white men who very, very few of whom had any kind of domain expertise background. So mm-hmm. they were using deep learning to solve kind of bullshit problems. Um, so we thought, okay, if nothing changes, that's going to get worse and worse because those people keep getting money thrown at them and um, and they keep hiring more of the same people and investing education in the same places. and. But at the same time, you know, um, it's deep learning is not that hard and it can be used to help so many areas with so many problems. Mm-hmm. So if we could get kind of get this, the, the skills out there, um, then maybe, uh, people who otherwise would not be able to, will be able to like make a big impact. So, I mean, Judy's a good example. I think she's from Kenya, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure she would have been a great radiologist, regardless, right? But I feel like now, you know, we have somebody in the kind of senior thought leader community amongst radiologists who is black and who is a woman, and who is, you know, both bringing AI to radiology and radiology to AI. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exactly the kind of perspective which, yeah, hope you know, I think can create opportunities where they didn't exist before. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the tools landscape. Uh, obviously one of the big developments in 2018 was the launch of the 1.0 uh, versions of both the Fast.ai library and, and uh, PyTorch. Uh, is it too early to, to talk about kind of momentum from the PyTorch launch? Or are you it's not too early because
1: one of the really interesting things has been to see TensorFlow's reaction, which is they've really got off their ass and, <laughs> and are doing good stuff. You mm-hmm. know, they made some tough choices, like getting rid of TF.contrib, mm-hmm. making TFO a much more community-driven exercise. I think they realized that you know the the direction. You know, you talk to almost any. Google TensorFlow engineer, <laughs> off the record at least, and they'll tell you they all hate that code base. You know, it's mm. full of technical debt and it's just not well put together. Um, and it's not focused on the kind of the developer experience. Um, mm-hmm. It's really focused on using as many TPUs as possible. So, so TF2 is looking like a huge step forward in terms of the developer experience and, um, you know, uh, just kind of a, a piece of software that people will enjoy using <laughs> rather than mm-hmm. use because they have to. So, and, and I really think that's been, I mean, I know it's been very heavily a reaction to PyTorch, mm-hmm. which is not to say PyTorch invented this approach. Uh, it, I mean, Chainer certainly did it before PyTorch and mm-hmm. I don't quite know the history before that, but um, I think, yeah, realizing that The tools need to be written for developers uh, is just a really important insight. So I think that's been. So I think the impact on the on the TensorFlow gorilla has been important and interesting. Uh But then, um, yeah, people just using PyTorch, uh, particularly in the research community, you're definitely seeing things. You know, more innovation as a result. You're seeing faster innovation, Mm -hmm. and then yeah, you know, the impact of fast AI is probably a little early to really know, but um, we're seeing that for a whole nother level for the, you know, quite a few researchers who have picked up FastAI. And, you know, FastAI kind of has two different user groups in mind. There's the, you know, very much the research user group. So that's all about the kind of lower level of abstractions where, so for example, with our GANs, you know, we've made it so you can, easily do research around like if you want some uh, dynamic approach to switching between training the critic and the generator you know you you can just plug in your own GAN switcher class or if you want Mm. to pre-train a different kind of critic you can plug in a different pre-trained critic class whatever and then of course there's the user group of people who just want to get something working at their company so for example one person who came up to me at NeurIPS last night, said, oh, my company has 3 million documents. Um, It's a pretty big international company and we've been using FastAI and ULM Fit to basically tag all 3 million documents. And they Mm. have a full-time taxonomist who sits there and classifies documents and then that gets fed off to ULM Fit through FastAI and then they look at the results and fine-tune the model. Um, So they're not doing research-level customization or whatever. They're Mm -hmm. just getting stuff done. So I think, yeah, I think both of those groups, uh, you know, I think previously they would have been using Keras if you wanted to do something like that. But Keras just doesn't really give you easy support of things like NLP and things like that. So um, I think, yeah, maybe that's one of the main impacts of fast AI in that area is easy... Deep learning isn't just in computer vision anymore. It's mm-hmm. also NLP and tabular and yeah. collaborative filtering.
0: Mm-hmm. Any other uh, interesting things on the tool side that you've that have caught your eye?
1: Um, yeah, there's plenty of stuff going on. I wish I had more time to dig into them than I did. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the PyTorch community. Well, I mean, obviously one big thing in PyTorch version one release, which just came out yesterday, is the just-in-time compiler. So you can add a JIT decorator to your code and get, you know, fused, you know, fast inference version of it. So Mm. um, there's quite a bit of that stuff going on. There's another um, much less known library uh, for PyTorch, which is the uh, Gaussian Processes Library. And... um, to me, it's not so much interesting because of the Gaussian processes, but it'd be interesting because they have something called a lazy tensor, which kind of takes the, the, the JIT to a whole other level, which is um, uh, you can, as you basically say, these are all the mathematical operations I want to do on my tensor. It, it's just storing the computation graph. It's not doing the actual calculation at all until later on when you just say, you know, compute, and then it compiles a kind of a fused version mm-hmm. much faster, handles kind of stuff like sparsity and stuff much better Um, and they also have some kind of nice um, linear algebra identities which they use to you know just use arithmetically much better choices when they know that you know you had these different shape matrices and you did these particular operations to them and you know this linear algebra identity so therefore we can replace that set of operations with this single Mm fast one. Um, At least
0: with the lazy tensor, is this an example of kind of PyTorch moving towards TensorFlow while TensorFlow is moving towards yeah, PyTorch? I think so.
1: <laughs> um, I think so. Yeah, exactly. So the kind of the the, the the JIT in PyTorch is starting to feel a bit like XLA, I guess, in mm-hmm. TensorFlow, but with less technical debt. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and the kind of the lazy tensor stuff is starting to look a bit like the um, uh, kind of static graph approach, right. but without all the horrible boilerplate that you need in <laughs> TensorFlow. So, um, I mean, what uh, where I'm really excited, though, is what TNG Chen is doing with TVM. Like, hopefully, that uh, stuff with TVM, where Can you elaborate on that? What's TVM? Yeah, TVM, uh, TVM is, is something that's basically at a lower level, which is that you um, take a... It's basically a compiler for tensor expressions that will create an, an optimized version of your tensor expression and um because at the moment one of the things I hate is I hate it when I say to a student like okay let's dig into this code which calls this which calls this which calls this and let's understand all the stuff that's going on and they get to a point where it's like oh and this calls NVIDIA's cuDNN library so at Mm -hmm. that point okay after that it's magic Mm -hmm. so one Mm -hmm. of the cool things TVN does is it um kind of lets you see you know um, it doesn't suddenly stop at CUDA and It's Now here's the TVM code, you know? Okay. And then um, TVM ends up, believe it or not, faster than CUDA NN, even though TVM is automatically creating that optimized CUDA kernel. Um, so
0: is it a replacement or is it compiling down to CUDA or something?
1: Uh, I mean, it still has to compile down to, uh, uh, not necessarily CUDA, but maybe PTX. Um, mm-hmm. So it's still, you know, so it, and it's not, but it's not just for Nvidia. It can also target, you know, ARM or, you know, um, various mobile devices or CPU. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of like excited about this because I, I think it might mean that, um, particularly for stuff like um, Swift for TensorFlow, which is a project I'm really excited about. You know, you know, hopefully we can see things where we can write. Everything we're doing in our kind of host language, mm-hmm. and um, I was going to ask: Are you excited about
0: that because you're excited about Swift, the language, or because you want to see deep learning accessible via all the languages? Uh,
1: there's a number of reasons I'm excited about it. Um, one is that I hate Python, so it'd be <laughs> great to you know um, get rid of it. Um, it's just it's just incredibly frustrating to have to write in a language which has so many clutchy things like with global interpreter lock and mm-hmm. just so incredibly slow every time you actually do something in Python and um, hmm. so you know it's it's very very frustrating to, to to work with It's fine if you're doing a web app or something but for numerical programming you spend all of your time trying to figure out how to have everything not being done in Python <laughs> you know you're basically always calling to see your CUDA or whatever libraries right. um, Partly it's because Chris Latner, everything he touches is awesome. So it's just mm-hmm. nice when somebody like that comes into your field. And um, I just can't, you know, I just love seeing what he's doing. Um, partly because Swift is just, you know, it's a good language. Um, um, it's, uh, you know, there's a few good languages in the world, like I think F sharp and Julia and Swift are uh, all examples of just good languages. Um, but the thing about Swift, um, and and Julia and If sharp is they can all um, you can write fast code in them and so like and so Chris's approach with, with the Swift for TensorFlow team is that you'll be able to write all of your CUDA kernels and stuff in Swift you know mm. and so be, you know and, and because like he's the LLVM guy you know, you know he's got the compiler chops to make sure that those Swift ke- te- kernels are not going to be any slower than the C kernels mm-hmm. will be. So also from a teaching point of view, it will be really nice to be able to show people every layer. And from a research point of view, it will be really nice because we'll be able to swap out this LSTM cell with our own LSTM cell and hmm. not have to yeah, worry about, you know, switching into C++ and compiling right. an extension and then dealing with a whole different debugging framework and mm-hmm. all that. Huh. How far along is that? Um, not terribly far along. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not. Some of our students have tried to kind of play with it, and it's not really usable. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it'll get there. Okay. And similar stuff going on in Julia, by the way. Julia also has some really exciting stuff going on around writing kernels in Julia and mm-hmm. and all that. Okay. Uh, so maybe switching gears
0: to twenty nineteen and things you're excited about, uh, opportunities. What what do you what are you looking forward to?
1: Well,
0: um, what do you think is going to happen? If I don't know if you're one for kind of dusting off a crystal ball, but
1: no, I don't even know what <laughs> I'm going to do. Let alone other people. I mean, we'll just keep doing what we're doing, I guess. Um, so. Uh, I'm going to be doing a deep dive into um, speech recognition kind of mm-hmm. next year. We're going to write a book uh, about fast AI and PyTorch, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the book version of the course, I guess, early in the year with uh, Sylvain Gouger, who has been helping us with pretty much everything this year. Um, you know, I, 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 hopefully, we'll keep lowering the bar around. Um, I mean, we, hopefully we'll start getting to the point sometime soon. I don't know if it'll be in the next year where we can do useful stuff without any code. That's that's really the, the mm-hmm. main bar that I want to get to is doing useful stuff without any code. What does that mean for you? So there's this uh, startup I'm involved in called Platform AI, where we're trying to do exactly this for one particular subdomain, which is image classification. So... You can, uh, don't even need labels, you can import some some photos, and we try and provide a uh, kind of intuitive representation of what the model is learning to help a domain expert interact with it in an entirely visual way. Um, So for me, it's all about like people using stuff like that to solve scientific problems or to optimize their logistics or whatever Mm -hmm. it is they're trying to do, you know, like Mm -hmm. It's all about recognizing that machine learning is computers learning from examples. And so that should be all about getting rid of code. You shouldn't need for loops and conditionals and stuff. You should just be able to say, here are my examples. And Mm -hmm. the computer said, here is what I'm learning. And then you should say, well, here is some feedback about which ones are right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's where we want to get to. So, yeah, so we've uh, already got this startup doing that for computer vision. And I hope to do similar things in speech and NLP as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we rely on people knowing how to code, we're missing out on something like 99.9% of the global population. <laughs> right,
0: right. Uh, so maybe, you know, not kind of being so strict about 2019, just, you know, looking ahead to the near future, what, um, you know, where do you think the opportunities for us uh, lie or, or are there specific Um, ideas, you know, or even some of the ideas that we've talked about in terms of, you know, better understanding of the way some of the training techniques are working or...
1: So the the big opportunity right now is NLP.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, you know, this year we and others showed that transfer and learning for NLP works. Specifically, it works without requiring any manual labeling um, Mm -hmm. um, other than... For your target task and even then doesn't require much labels. Um, we're going to see, I'm pretty sure, similar things being shown for um, generative models for text. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately that means one of the big opportunities will be that um, spammers and trolls and people interested in disinformation will be able to use this technology to cause much more mayhem than they've been able to cause before. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's probably going to happen in the next 12 months. So I would not be surprised to see massive scale bots of generative text, which are both appropriate enough to the thing it's responding to, to seem reasonable Mm -hmm. and kind of reasonably believable stylistically that large numbers of people will be fooled by them large amounts of the time and they will not be easily automatically blocked or even analyzed to know the scope of them mm-hmm. the way that things are now. So do you think the technology
0: to fight that is harder than the technology to create it or no is it question. just the will? Side? No, it's
1: much harder. To okay. It. I, 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 uh, I feel very confident that I, you know, if I had the reason or motivation to build such a bot now, I uh-huh. feel very confident I could create one at scale, which would, you know, be devastating to any social media platform. Uh, and I think lots of people—I mean, not lots, lots, but you know, anybody involved in the modern NLP kind of uh, transfer learning stuff could. Um, I would have no, if somebody said to me like, hey, Jeremy, Sebastian Ruder's has just become an evil genius. (laughs) He has written a Twitter bot to spread Russian disinformation. Can you go and help block it? I'd be like, no, probably not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. That sounds really, really, really hard. Uh, And that's often been the problem in these kind of areas is it's normally easier to create mayhem than to block it Mm -hmm. Um, and also when you're trying to block it you're always kind of being reactive uh, particularly where we're not using more heuristic approaches to do the generative modeling but using kind of smarter approaches Mm -hmm. so yeah I think that's going to be a really big problem Mm -hmm. and one of the challenges is that the best way to fight that would, would be to write your own generative text bots and you know, use them to fight the disinformation. But mm-hmm. the kinds of people that would want to fix the problem would be much less likely to be the kinds of people who would be prepared to mm-hmm. <laughs> launch their own generative text box. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be difficult. Um, but I, then I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to, um, you know, in industry for, for companies to be able to use text as a valuable resource. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it can certainly happen in medicine as well. Um, like one of the challenges in radiology is that the the labels are all buried in radiology reports right and when you look at stuff like the data sets that the NIH have provided for medical imaging the labels they've created have been using classic rules-based NLP approaches and they're just terrible Hmm. so having um, that labeling done with these kind of modern transfer learning approaches will be awesome. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's hopefully going to be one of the big, uh, at least the positive side of it will be one of the big things in 2019. Um, I think we're going to see these different approaches to normalization um, probably start to take over from batch norm. I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that we don't have a real ImageNet competition anymore because, like, ImageNet, you know, has plenty of flaws and I'm not saying we need ImageNet back, but the fact that there was our competition that quite a few of the more serious researchers decided to invest significant time in meant that each year you would see, you know, this mm-hmm. year we've got, you know, 3 progress. by 3 convs. This year we've yeah. got ResNets. Yeah. This year we've got, you know... Um, Andrew Howard's uh, data augmentation methods, like they were like, it made people who would otherwise be focusing on mathematically pure whatever's like mm-hmm. actually focus on solving a problem properly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I I do worry that, you know, and also those solutions got published, not just as papers, but as, you know, um, pre-trained models that we can download. So I, I do worry a bit that we might continue to use pre-trained ImageNet models with older architectures and older normalization approaches and stuff just because we don't quite have an image net competition anymore. Hmm. So I don't know what the fix to that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is like TF Hub and now there's a Torch Hub, which, trans, you know, actually provide pre-trained models. But people need to start realizing, I think, yeah, that the image net models are increasingly out of date, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then, you know, skip connections is still interesting. Um, the the UNET paper is now the um, most highly cited MICAI Medical Imaging Conference paper of all time. Uh, ResNet obviously is still kind of all powerful, um, so two really mm-hmm. important skip connection stuff. Um, so I think hopefully people will keep finding ways to better utilize skip connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two things get connections, and normalization, yeah, really help make models easier to train um, quickly and accurately. Mm-hmm.
0: The, I think the rate at which new data sets are coming online has uh, been uh, increasing. There have been a ton of these in like various domains in 2018. Any do you think we see um, or need for that matter? like a, a kind of a better image net or a, a monster, you know, kind of the image data set to end all image data sets, or do you, no, do you think need, the domain um, specific direction is that, more, that one, is better?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so Google to their credit, just yesterday, maybe it was this morning, released a much more diverse version of open images, um, and that's really fantastic because the the previously the open images and ImageNet data sets were incredibly biased in terms of they were basically all came from white Western countries and so mm-hmm. that made it very difficult to train models that could recognize Hindu weddings versus Christian weddings, for example. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think we have a great... Uh, photo object classification data sets. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have great microscopy, you know, histopathology data sets. Mm-hmm. We don't have great radiology data sets. Um, on the text side, NLP side? Uh, on both, yeah. Um, particularly thinking of vision. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, on the text side, I mean, it's ridiculous. The There are almost no publicly available labeled text data sets that normal people can use as they wish. Um, Most of them are locked behind this thing called the Linguistic Data Consortium, which is part of uh, UPenn. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure originally when it was created, uh, it had every good plan to help research whatever. But today it's basically this... um, thing that is increasing the exclusivity of the field so like it's my students can't replicate results in papers because so many of the data sets in NLP are locked behind all kinds of licensing agreements Mm. and like one of the most popular ones the Reuters corpus you have to like download print sign with your organizational affiliation a form and send it to the to the government for approval, and, mm-hmm. you know, you can't have a hundred thousand fast AI students doing that. So right. I can't use those data sets because they just aren't the, like they were created in a time when people just didn't occur to them that like maybe there's more than just this like little research community of people who go to my little workshop, but there's actually a, there's a whole world of people out there who mm-hmm. are wanting to do work. right? You know, so that's a huge problem. Um, So I think um, you know I think something else I would really like to see is in areas like medical imaging where data sharing is difficult. um, I want to see more model sharing. So Mm. like there's lots of pre-trained image net models, like more than we need. Mm -hmm. So where's all the pre-trained histopathology models and Mm. the pre-trained CT models and the pre-trained MRI models, like? Those are actually much more useful because, you know, if Stanford releases their pre-trained prostate MRI model and then Boston picks it up and fine tunes it a bit and publishes those weights and then Harvard picks it up and fine tunes that a bit and then publishes those weights and then Stanford can come back and Mm -hmm. fine tune that back in the circle and end up with something better than they started with. Like it actually has been shown that you end up with just as good a model as you would have if you actually shared the data. Mm -hmm. But all you actually have to do is share weights. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love to see people releasing pre-trained domain-specific networks. Uh, So another thing we saw quite a bit of this year
0: was uh, proposals for um, data sheets for data sets, model cards, um, you know, different... uh, uh, representations of the idea that we need to document the biases and um, and lineage in some cases of data sets and models. Uh, do you see that stuff taking off?
1: I don't see it taking off, no. I mean, I think it's really cool the work that Timnit Gebru and all those folks did with the data data sheets for data sets work mm-hmm. and uh, some really interesting examples of other industries where that's happened. So mm-hmm. I've done some work with electronics and certainly I'm used to, as as uh, they describe in the paper, that right. every electronics component comes with a data sheet, sheet right. in a fairly consistent format and you rely on it. Um, having said that, um, we're still suffering in the um, deep learning world from people not publishing their data at all or not publishing their code at all. So... I also worry about, like, if we say, like, well, you can't publish your data set unless you create this data sheet. Maybe there'll be even less people publishing their data. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that all the conferences need to say, if you have experiments, you need to publish the code and the data. People claim that we have this great peer review system. But when you actually look at it, it doesn't really work. Like, reviewers don't recreate the papers, write the code to recreate the papers ever. On the other hand, when people put stuff up on archive, uh, there'll be many of our students all at the same time trying to replicate it. And if they can't, Mm -hmm. they'll get up on GitHub and post issues and say, what's Mm -hmm. going on? Which happened just a couple of weeks ago, it turned out that a widely cited paper, our students went to replicate it and found they couldn't and discovered Mm -hmm. that the researchers had accidentally used the test uh, used the uh, test set as part of their training data you know <laughs> so like i don't at all agree with this idea that we have to keep this pure exclusive peer review system mm-hmm. what we instead need is for people to publish their code and publish their data and then get it out there so that the rest of us can can try it out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think the academic community still doesn't realize how many of us do do that replication. Like mm-hmm. every single algorithm that fast AI teaches or implements in our software, we always re-implement from scratch and test mm-hmm. from scratch, for example, and we're definitely not the only ones. Mm-hmm. So I think like are people, are lots of people going to start publishing data sheets for data sets? Uh, let's first of all have them publish data sets (laughs) at all. Um, It would be great if they, you know, and I guess it's up to the kind of conference and venues and journals and stuff to start saying, you know, first, yes, you have to publish your code and data. And then maybe once that's happening, okay, you actually have to also publish a data sheet to go with it. Mm -hmm. Um, We could at least encourage through the review process in the meantime to like, if you've got a new data set to kind of say like, can you, you know, reviewers could, Ask for information about mm-hmm. how it was collected, and mm-hmm. you know what the diversity of people involved in was and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. It certainly does seem like a good bar uh, in a time when you've got four thousand submissions to NeurIPS and a thousand papers being published to uh, require that folks that are doing experimental work publish the code as well. It does, <laughs> yeah. Well, Jeremy, it's been so great to chat with you once again. Great to see you here. And uh, thanks for
1: taking the time. Thank you, Sam.
0: All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.